Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 322. This program is dedicated in honor of Chaim Mitche. Well, we're in the last days of the month of Av, of Menachem Av, going into the month of Elul. Coming from Shabbos Mavorchim El, this week we will begin the compassionate month, the Chedush HaRachemim of El. This Shabbos is also, and this week is the Pasha of Sheftim. So, as is our custom, we begin with that which is timely, living with the times, in the words of the Alter Rebbe, living with the Pasha that we read during this time, and of course with the calendar that we live through this time. As we know, the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar is essentially a reflection of a cycle, of a spiral of time. It's actually energy based on the Zohar that says, why does it say, Bisheshis yomim osa shemelikim asa shemayim It should have said, Bisheshis yomim. In a period of six days, during six days, Sheshis yomim is like missing a word. Six days God created heaven and earth, says the Zohar. Because the six days themselves were a creation. Six days God created. Not just He created the creations during this six-day span, but the six days themselves are six levels of energy. Kol Every day does its function, has its function, has its energy, has its spirit. So time and essence, every moment, every minute, every hour, every night and day, every day, every week, Every month, every year, every decade, and on and on, it has unique energy. So when we're going from Av to El, it's not just a transition of time. It's also a transition of spirit. The month of Av, of course, is the saddest month in the Hebrew calendar. The month of destruction. And the month of El is the last month of the calendar in the Shnas Achama meaning that leads into Tishrei, a month that is called, as I mentioned, Chedush HaRachamim, the month of compassion. Because in this month, Hashem, God, showed compassion to Moshe Rabbeinu when he was up on the mountain begging for forgiveness for the Jewish people. After breaking the tablets due to the golden calf that they had built, Moshe continues to pray for them. And in this month is when the Ebeshter, God reveals to Moshe the, the secret 13 attributes of divine mercy. Yud Gimel Midas Harachamim. And therefore this month is called Chedesh Harachamim. It's a Chedesh of love. The mazel of this month is Psula, Virgo. And it is in every possible way a month of connection after the deep disconnection that happened in the month above. So it's a very significant month. We also know it as the last month of the year and, the, and which is considered the Chedesh HaCheshbin as the Friedrich Rebbe puts it, a a month of accountability, of accounting for everything that took place in the past year, and the Chedesh HaAchona, the month that prepares us for the next year, Tovshin Pei Aleph. Now, what a year this has been, the year of the pandemic. Some say Tehishnas pandemic, Tovshin Pei. Obviously, it's not very exactly complimentary, it's more tongue-in-cheek. And uh, someone pointed out to me, we're already past Tishabov, that um, that that uh, Tavshin Pei 
is the gematria of Tisha B'Av, same gematria, 780. And uh, of course, this year was a year of Bidud, a year of Bodad, Echa Yashva Bodad, a year of quarantine and lockdown. However, there's also the positive, Heim Ami Levodad Yishkin. The Jewish people are also a singular people. There's negative loneliness and there's also singularity, a specialness. So our mission is to transform the Bodad, the Bidud, the separation that we were compelled to do due to the pandemic, COVID-19, into a, a bidud, a bodod, that connects us with the uniqueness. The uniqueness that we have, the uniqueness that each human being has, connecting that to the uniqueness of God himself. So we have much to account for, we have much to review, and of course to prepare for a new year, perhaps unprecedented, the unknown, the inability to really make plans in the fullest sense of the word. What would Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur be like? And we'll be talking all about this throughout this month in my life, Chassidus Applied. It's exactly what, is, what Chassidus Applied is about, applying Teir and Chassidus to our lives and to the challenges of our lives. So we have, for every challenge, we're also given all the resources we need. El is filled with resources. The Rebbe emphasizes the five Rosh Hashanahs of El, the five acronyms, which reflect the three pillars upon which the world stands, the general world and the microcosm, the human being, Torah, Aveda, and Gnilas Chasodim. There's three acronyms that correspond to that. And then there's an acronym that corresponds to Tshuva, the concept of return. And finally, an acronym that corresponds to Geula, to redemption. All five acronyms, all in the word El, the most famous, of course, is Anilu Deidi Vedeidi Li. I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. And the Alter Rebbe gives a beautiful mushal, which we'll talk later about at the end of the program, of the Melech Basada, that it's a month where we can approach the king and ask for everything, even in an informal way, even as we are in our mundane environment, in our mundane garments. So it indeed is a powerful month. And it's interesting that it's born from the month of Av, as I've cited many times from the Shalah, the Shalah, the month of, of is the Mazel Aryeh. Aryeh is Aleph Reish Yud Hei. It's a Rosh Teva, says the Shalah, and the Tzamech Tzedek cites it in Eira Teira, Nach. Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yeh Makipurim, Hishayin The four main, the, the four, the four uh, milestones, if you wish, the four key signposts of the month of Tishrei. Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippurim, and Hashanah Rabbah. Not just Tishrei, Elul as well. All born from what? The acronym of Aryeh of Of. Because as we've discussed, as we've discussed many times, Achsidus elaborates, Yerida Tzerechaliyah. The descent of Of is in order to reach a greater ascent, and as the Rebbe explains, means that the descent is part of the ascent. That's the only way to get there. So the ascent is actually, the Aliyah is an outgrowth of Aryeh, of the descent. In the words of the Yalkut Shemeni, Almanas, the destruction in the month of Aryeh is Almanas, on condition that it should bring construction in the same month. So it gives birth, even on a practical level. When did Moshe Rabbeinu elicit the power of Rachamim and compassion? It was due to the fact that there was a descent, a fall, a betrayal. So El is outgrowth of that betrayal, but not the betrayal part, the correction and the repair, 
and the healing and the tshuva that will ultimately culminate when we reach through the month of El to the month of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah. After El Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, of course, is when he receives the second tablets, Salach and achieves that full forgiveness. I have forgiven them as you have requested, God says. And then it concludes the Siyum the sealing on a Shainer So we're living in a period now that really is a reflection of our, of our lives. No matter where you are in life, whether things are going really well, or things are challenging and there's a setback, this is the period in time of the year where it's addressing that, those cycles. The cycle of the down and the cycle of up. A raising of a building with a Z in order to build even a greater one. That's where we are now. A number of years ago, in the work that I do and I travel and meet different types of people, you know, we live in a time where there's assimilation is at a very high level, and we live in a stage of a spiritual crisis. So in that context, I remember many years ago, it was close to 20 years ago, when I traveled to California for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, especially Yom Kippur, actually, it wasn't Rosh Hashanah, pardon, Yom Kippur, and we did a special Yom Kippur service is officially for secular people, so to speak. People who did not have a synagogue were unaffiliated. It was a tremendous experience, and here's not the time and place to go into it, but one thing that grew out of it was from the people I met there who were really looking and starving for spiritual inspiration, starving, that it evolved into the book I wrote and composed, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. It's a book that came from real, it came, it, it was not just an idea I had, it was an outgrowth from the challenges and the need to make the high holiday season relevant. Not that it needs to be made relevant, but for so many people they anticipate the new season, Rosh Hashanah, renewal, Yom Kippur, holy, and many people feel they go to synagogue or whatever the challenge, the challenges this year will be, how to bring the synagogue home. <clears throat> And 60 days is meant to be exactly that, a journey that begins on Rosh Elul and goes day by day through the month of Elul, then the month of Tishrei, concluding at the end of the month of Tishrei. So 60 days, a journey. Like a workbook every day, there's exercises, a thought, the events, facts, history, laws. <clears throat> I must say I'm pretty proud of this book. It was hard work. It was a very unique type of book beautifully designed by our designer, and it became very it became a uh, success. What does success mean? People are using it to actually create a transformative experience. But this year, without our planning it, the book has become even beyond that, because for many people, usually be able to rely on going to shul for the high holiday services, for hearing the chauffeur, to hear the rabbi speak, community service, the minion, and so on. For many of us, we will be challenged. Will we be able to do the high holidays quite that way? But remember, it's God that runs the show. So even when you cannot do it in the regular conventional way, you can do it by bringing that whole high holiday experience home, and 60 days is a perfect tool to do so. And I definitely very strongly encourage it. The book begins literally the day of Rosh Chodesh El, will be in the middle of this week. And continues day by day. There's of course the book which you can purchase online but this, we also send out a daily email as well as a podcast. 
So you may be familiar with the spiritual antidotes I've been doing daily. We're going to transition from the spiritual antidotes right into El, continuing that journey. And what more, time, what more appropriate, how more appropriate than today when we need that story? Because at the end of the day, the 60 days, El and Tishrei, is the story of love, betrayal, and reconciliation. The story of health, destruction, loss, and rebuilding. That's the story. Begins in the month of Av, begins in the month of Tammuz, actually, in the 17th of Tammuz, continues on, and then the rebuilding, which begins in the beginning of the 60 days. So please, take advantage of this. You can subscribe to the emails. You can hear the podcast, a daily a few minutes, just three, two, three minute message. I believe it's a two minute average message. And uh, please share as well with your friends. And we'd love to hear all of your feedback. So this is all in the context of applying chassidus to this unique time. So it's not just another day in the calendar, not just another month. It's actually a month that's meant to give us resources and strengths, empowering us to be able to navigate the vicissitudes and the challenges that we're all facing today whether it's personal challenges, whether it's familial ones based on the family, work-related, health-related, spiritual, psychological, emotional. The pandemic has brought out many different challenges, but at the same time also allows us to dig deeper and find stronger and greater resources. So that's the story, my friends, of Month of El, among many other lessons. If you go to our site, both MeaningfulLife.com and ChassidusApplied.com, you'll find many, many other resources, programs, the full schedule of events that literally almost on a daily basis that you can take advantage of, different, different topics covering the spectrum of life and the human condition, as well as for different audiences, men, women, children, and teenagers. So please also check that out. Just go to MeaningfulLife.com, you'll see a calendar that is uh, continuously being updated. And especially in the last few months, we have been um, on overload and over working overtime because of the great needs out there. While I'm already making my announcements, let me already make the announcement as well. This cannot happen without your partnership because in Ein Kemach Ein Teda, we need funding. Partnership, of course, is not just funding other ways as well, but especially funding. So please, We've been running a Meaningful Lifeline campaign, and now we're just concluding it. There's 48 more hours left, a little less. Um, and please participate, partner, be gracious in giving. The month of El is a time of giving. As we give, we are given in return. And partner with us in really empowering people, us and others, as many as possible, with tools that can really strengthen and boost our spiritual and emotional and psychological lives. So go to MeaningfulLife.com slash Lifeline and you'll see all the details there. Please contribute. As I said, the campaign will be going another, almost another 24, 48 hours and, uh, and share that with your friends as well. While I'm announcing things, so we have ChassidahSupply.com which is a exclusive website dedicated to Hasidic resources, applying them to life, meaning all these programs and all the archive, the 321 episodes up till now, almost seven years that we've been doing this program, are all archived there. And you can also submit any question you like. Nothing is off limits. 
anonymously at the forum there at chassidahsupply.com. We also have there posted all the essays of previous years, and soon we'll be posting the essays of this year's contest, 2020, which will be announced shortly. I will also add that on that site you'll find m- more resources. I give a daily class in Hemshech Ayin Beis, the magnum opus, the Mount Everest of Hasidic and Kabbalistic thought, which is from the Rebbe Rashab. So every day, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, check out, I'm, check out the website Hasidic Supply, then you'll have all the details, the Zoom address and the, and the password and all other details you need and many other resources, free, browse around, and you'll see what I mean. Okay. So we talked about Elul. We're talking about how to prepare for the new year, and especially a year which, as I said, has been challenged in unique ways. So the message, to sum up what I've said till now, the message is very clear, that no matter what happens, even if there's a break, the breaking of the tablets, where metaphorically that can be any form of break in our lives, disruptions, disturbances, what we've all been experiencing now, a destabilization, all that is included in the break. The break, of course, is also the break and the destruction of the temple. So again, applying that to our personal lives, whatever temple, whatever holiness, or anything else in our lives, that seems to have now experienced a challenge. We can't go to shul quite the same way. We can't do the same things that we would have done until now. And yet comes Elul and answers that no, you can. If you dig deeper, as Moshe Rabbeinu did, and you reach into the inner parts of your soul, you have the capacity not just to protect ourselves, not just to immunize ourselves from the breaks and the cracks, and the disruptions, but actually to become stronger in the process. And that's what happens. Moshe Rabbeinu evokes and elicits, elicits from God the 13 attributes of compassion. We all have that power. When you cry from your heart, when you reach, when you try harder, there's always going to be a response. It's a very important lesson in life. Many of us feel sometimes defeated, resigned, fatalistic, you must make your effort. It's your effort. You don't have to make someone else's effort. An effort that goes a little out of your comfort zone will always have the call and response of, so to speak, God going out of his comfort zone and helping us reach places that we thought we couldn't reach without, where we thought we could not reach earlier. So that's the bottom line lesson of of our, for our time. As I said, 60 days is an excellent way of going step by step, strengthening yourself, connecting to deeper ideas, connecting to your loved ones, and really entering Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and experiencing it like never before. That's the opportunity we have now. Precisely because it's not conventional. And it's not going by a, 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 a scheduled program that we could always rely on, that we relied on, look at your calendar, this is what you do, with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Not based on any pre-programmed and pre-set structure, that that allows us to experience it in new and unprecedented ways. And we can do this with ourselves, with our loved ones, with our children. We prepare. That's why Elul is here, to prepare 
and figure out new interesting ways. How can we do a Rosh Hashanah unique this year when we may not be able to go to a synagogue or a shul? And as I said, the book 60 days and the daily exercise, the daily program is a tremendous asset that can help you achieve that and personalize it like never before. I have no doubt that this Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in the age of the pandemic of COVID-19 can be one that will be unprecedented, historical, that we will look back and say, I never had such a powerful high holiday season. I never had such a powerful renewal, such a powerful sanctification and so much joy corresponding to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and Sukkot. So we will be talking more about this as I mentioned, but now is a good time to begin as we prepare our resources, it's like preparing as we're about to enter into this month of Elul. A little cross-referencing of this topic I've talked about in previous years, episodes 34, 79, and 80, 128 to 130, 175 to 176, 223 to 225, 228, 273 to 275. I know that sounds very technical and some of you don't really care, but I say it for the, for the record because I know quite a few people do check up I, once in a while, people write to me and say, I think you mis misspoke, you mentioned the wrong episode. But for the full picture, please, you can access those. As I said, at chassidahsupply.com, you'll find all the previous episodes. And they're time-stamped on the YouTube version of the videos. Okay. So let's move now to Shaftim. Now, Shaftim has a number of messages and themes. I've spoken about them as well in these uh, previous programs, previous years. But I want to touch upon two because there are questions that are coming that are actually questions that are related to this week's Pasha. Firstly, referring to Shaftim, Shaftim Vesheitim refers to Shaftim, and Shaftim are the, the Shaftim, the judges and the law enforcers that you shall appoint. Bechol Sharecha. Shaftim Vesheitim, Titlacha Bechol Sharecha. In all your municipalities, in all your gates, literally, you shall appoint Shaftim Vesheitim. Now, especially for Chassidim and Chabad, Parsha Shaftim has a unique, a unique role, a unique uh, experience. Because in Tov Shinun Aleph, which is exactly, um, exactly 29 years ago, right? That's, am I correct? Nun, Samachayim Pei would be 30, yes. Exactly 29 years ago, on this Parsha Shaftim, the Rebbe spoke a very dramatic, a very unique and very rare type of talk that till this day is still quite, uh, I don't say cryptic is not the right word, but it's still a sikha you read, you see it stands out. And the Rebbe talks exclusively, talks about Anovi, because the Pasha talks about Nuvua, prophecy. And he says that, that, that there is a Novi in our generation who is prophesizing that the Gula will come. And it's a mitzvah to be mafarsim to let people know about this Novi. Now it's a whole sikha, a beautiful sikha, where the Rebbe structures it around sheftim and sheitrim, what is their role in life, personal life, that we all need to have a rav, like a sheifet, someone who's an authority, a sheitr, I'm sorry, someone, a sheifet and a sheitr are similar, he mentions the haftayra, a shiva shavtaich, kivarashenev yitzayich, kivatchila, the difference in a sheifet and a sheitr, like a sheifet, and a yayitz, and it explains that there's a rav that's authoritative, and then there's a yayitz, is advisor, a say say lecha rav, and kneh lecha 
an authority, a rabbi, a mentor, and a chavr is a friend. Talks about that in our personal lives. As I said, really beautiful sikha to look at, Sheftim Tavshinun Aleph, it's muga and edited. I had the schus, the merit to prepare that for the Rebbe's edits. But then the more outstanding or the more dramatic aspect of the sikha is the talk about nevuah, as I just said. So therefore, I want to address a few questions that have come in, and they're really like also somewhat of a follow-up. We've been talking about Mashiach in the past few weeks. So the first question here, was the Rebbe a Novi, a prophet? If yes, what, was, what were his nevuahs? What were his prophecies? Also, were there any other Nevi'im since the Churban? Were there any prophets since the destruction of the Temple? If yes, who? If not, why not? A few other questions in this vein. An outside view of the Rebbe. How should we expect other from Yidin, Jews, to view the Rebbe meaning in regards to being Nasi Adar and Anovi, etc.? Thank you. To be leader of the generation and a prophet. Another question, which sounds similar to the, the previous one. Hi, what is the realistic expectation of our Chabad Chassid should expect other non-Chabad Yidin to view the Rebbe and his directives and announcements of the Geula, the redemption? So specifically, should they acknowledge the Rebbe as Nasi Hadar, as a leader of the generation, a prophet, Mashiach? When the Rebbe said, publicize, we have a Novi, a prophet, and, and he gave, gave prophecy, what is the appropriate way of doing this, if at all? Thank you. Okay. So briefly, when you read that sikha, and this has been a debate that's raging already 29 years since that sikha was delivered, the Rebbe definitely says there's a Novi, and he brings the Rambam, actually, because we know the Gemara says that after Chagei and, and the later prophets, there were no longer prophecy. Prophecy stopped among Israel. And yet... The Rambam writes that even though it did stop, we do have some examples of prophecy. The Rebbe cites it there. So you can look there all the, at all the sources cited. The Rebbe clearly states there in the Sikha that there's a Novi. Now, we know, and the Rambam cites this as Rambam Paskins this as well in Hilchos Malachim, that the prior to Mashiach's coming will come a Yohan Novi, the prophet Elijah, who will announce and herald in the coming of Mashiach. There's opinions whether that must be the case. Can they come together? Is it just is a, a, a long period between the two? But we have that concept. It appears from that sikha the Rebbe is referring that there's a Novi. Now, of course, all Chassidim would conclude, since the Rebbe has been talking about that Mashiach is, is here, it's at the threshold, and all we have to do is open our eyes. The world is ready. The different languages the Rebbe used. So the Rebbe is essentially telling us that the ghoul is about to come. So 2 plus 2 equals 4. That this sikh is telling us about this nevu of the Rebbe. And yet the Rebbe makes reference there to the nevu of the Friedrich Rebbe, Alta the Tshuva, Alta the Geula, back in the early 40s, that do Tshuva right away and we'll have the Geula right away, as soon as we do it. So, as I said, like it is with Mashiach, the debates that rage on, the same thing with the sikh of Novi. We'll soon get to about being mafarsimit. I'll share some interesting uh, uh, answers from the Rebbe that came in after, the, after that sikha. So, you can look at the sikha yourself. I'm not here to come and interpret. I can tell you what it says there. And everybody can interpret as they see fit. The question that many people have, if the Rebbe is the potential Mashiach, the Novi also the same one, Mashiach is being misnava on himself, 
Is he prophesizing that he himself is Mashiach? It would seem El Yohanavi is a different person than Mashiach. So it's among the questions that are asked, but regardless, the idea that a Rebbe can announce and say, the Gula is coming, is not just a matter of telling us the Mitzis, meaning you can also have a Chacham, a wise person can tell you. I look at the world around me, I see that there's signs of Mashiach are all around us, and we're about to enter. But once the Rebbe added the Nevoah part, makes it that it has also the force and the authority of a Nevoah. But the question, of course, is, when the Rebbe said, Yesh Lefarsim, what happened? So I can tell you from my, my personal experience, they tried to prepare an ad, here both in the United States and in Israel, about this message. And uh, specifically in Israel, they wrote to the Rebbe, they want to be before, the Rebbe said, Yesh Lefarsim, it's a mitzvah Lefarsim, to publicize and the Rebbe responded with the condition that it be done by Elam Atikun, the Kalim of the Tikun, I'm sorry, the Kalim of Tikun, which means in a way that people can, res- can res- receive it. Kalim the Tikun means it could be radical energy, but in Kalim that are receptive, that are, that are, um, uh, because in Toyu you have Eres the Toyu that can be very radical and powerful and passionate, but has to be presented in a way that's presentable. It's the simplest way to translate it. But the Rebbe added, not just Kalim the Tikkun, Ali Dei Ish, through a person who comes from the world of Tikkun. In other words, you can't have a person of Toyu making a plan of Tikkun, the Rebbe said. And then the third condition was that it should be with a, according to a plan, according to the rules of Elam Tikkun. So I asked what happened. So what happened at the end? They said that they saw that as an impossibility, or they saw that as a no, I'm not sure exactly. And they didn't end up running the ad. And I said, but the Rebbe didn't say no. He could have said, He knows how to say no if he wants to, the Rebbe. He gave conditions. So apparently they didn't know how to do it in a way that would be so-called be received in a way that people can receive it and it wouldn't sound crazy and wild. So the bottom line is we have the Sikh, it's printed. And uh, some people, for some reason, feel that they don't like to read that Sikh or they, they find they can't understand it. I don't understand that. I mean, it's part of the Rebbe's Sikh, it's all part of the same canon. God, the, 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 the Sikh is my modem of the Rebbe. Whether you understand it or not, or what it means, but the point is, above all, it's not about crowning anyone as prophet. This isn't about, okay, we're declaring here's a prophet. There's a message here that the Rebbe is saying that it's not just a statement, that it's a strong revelation that we are about, Mashiach is about to come, and we have to do whatever we can. And the words that the Rebbe said to CNN, what's your message to the world? That Mashiach is about to arrive, and we can speed up his coming through increasing in acts of goodness and kindness. So there's a call to action. That's above all. The Rebbe was the first to say, just to call names and people and define people as prophets or messiahs and so on is not the key. The key is the call to action. And knowing that it's a Navua makes it much stronger, much more compelling. So I would say that's what we need to focus on. A Rebbe is a Rebbe. A Rebbe is a Isha Lekim. If he needs to be a Novi, God makes him a Novi. He needs to be other things, he's other things. Whatever is necessary. But it's not an end in itself. It's the will of God that's working through him. And he's carrying, telling us what God wants of us. The Rebbe made it clear, we're in the Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation. We have a job to do. 
So that statement that we're here, that the Gula is about to arrive, that Gula is about to arrive, but we have to do something definitely much more urgency, much more potency, when you know this is not just a statement, but it's an actual revelation. That would be the way I would address this uh, Sikha, and I would present it. This is Kalim the Tikkun, a visionary. We hear there is a visionary who has a good bird's eye view of the whole of history, sees events today, and is telling us, not just as a statement of sensationalism. No, get yourself, get your act together. Be motivated, be, be uh, proactive, and generate energy, and let's bring redemption, personal and global redemption to the world. What I just said, is that in any way radical? What is personal and global redemption? A world of peace, a world of love, of harmony, materialism as being a stepping stone and a means to know God, a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. I've said this many times. Mashiach happens to be from the subjects, and I've spoken to many audiences, audiences that are not receptive and have not grown up with it, and they don't know the language. Mashiach is one of the easiest things to speak about because everybody wants a world of peace. Everybody wants a world of no more divisiveness and battles and polarization. Many people are participating in it, whatever the reason is. But everybody wants a better world for themselves and their children. And that's what the vision of Mashiach is. So to say there's a visionary that's telling us this is the vision, chazayin, this is a vision, a chazayin, a, a nevuah, of what we're ha- where we are right now. That was back in Tov Shinun Aleph, 1991. Now we're talking about the year 2020, almost 30 years later beginning of the 30th year, is a very appealing and a very kalim de dika message, if said the right way. The problem is we start getting caught up in language and in cliches and in uh, sensationalization, sensationalizing. You know, sensationalizing, you know, it's like you said something daring. Is that the goal? Someone once asked me, would you, do you have a problem getting up and saying there's a prophet, there's a visionary, a Mashiach? I say, I have no problem saying anything. The question is if the audience will be able to take, take it home. It's not a question of whether you're going to disturb them or you're going to offend them. Will they be able to take a message home that they can live with? That's the goal of a speaker, of a writer, of a communicator. Not just to say things. Yes, we could all say provocative things. The goal is to motivate somebody. Words from the heart enter the heart. That was the essence, the methodology of the Rebbe. That was all the Rebbe really wanted. Unfortunately, we get sometimes caught up with the words. It becomes sensational. sensational. It becomes provocative. And the, and the message is lost in the, in the shuffle. The message of do something. Two can Do whatever you can. And I say this to my fellow co- colleagues and citizens and to all of us. We need to take what the Rebbe said, these ideas, and translate them in a language that everybody says, oh, wow, that's beautiful. I'd love to hear a visionary today. Who doesn't need a visionary today? We don't have leaders that are sharing a vision. We have firefighters at best trying to contain a uh, pandemic, trying to contain, trying to find ways to vaccinate and to heal and to protect. These firefighters playing defense. A visionary goes much further, gives us a direction, guidance, a view, a panorama, something that excites us, excites young people. Let's do something. Let's create a spiritual revolution. And when you know it's coming from a visionary, 
A person who has that type of authority, that type of clarity, it gives it a whole different level. Because it's not just speculation. Saying, oh, we are there. Thousands of years of history have led us to this point. We can now achieve and finish the process. And I can say now, 29 years later, since that year, 1991, how much more so. Look at how people are receptive today for such a message. So that sikha is more relevant than ever now. But need to translate it into action. In a way, and always, I mean, I don't want to use uh, uh, marketing as an uh, uh, example, but why not? Marketing is part of this world. What is the test, whether you're saying something that is effective, if the customer is buying it, is purchasing it? And the Rebbe said many times, whatever you say with all your intentions, if the person listening does not understand or does not, is not motivated, then you didn't say it right. The Rebbe always would put the onus on us that means you didn't say it right. It wasn't said with words from the heart. It wasn't sincere. Maybe it wasn't with the right wording. It always comes down to how you say it, not what you say. And that is the emphasis of how we're supposed to convey sikhs like Sheftim Nunalaf and other such sikhs. And therefore, when you ask about non-Labavitches, to me, this is not a Labavitch message. If there's indeed a visionary like that, it's a message for everybody, for every Jew and every non-Jew. A vision for the world. And a vision that we play a role, a critical role, to do whatever we can to help the unfolding of the drama through our increasing goodness and kindness, and the Gu'ulah should actually be actualized and implemented in our time. Okay. Another theme in the Pasha Sheftim is Som Tasim Alecha Melech, the mitzvah of appointing a king. And they come into Eretz Yisrael. So here is also a few questions, and let me address them. And uh, let's see how much more we can cover. Oh, we have plenty of time. Good. Why does the Torah endorse and require a king? Why does the Torah endorse and require a king? We know that throughout history, the vast majority of kings, with few exceptions, became tyrants. Yeah. Why, didn't the Torah, why didn't the Torah endorse a system as they had during the times of the Sheftim, the judges, or even a democracy, which seems to be a lot more peaceful and better for society than kings? Does the Torah not agree with Lord Acton's statement, power corrupts absolute power, corrupts absolutely? We see that it leads to lots of killings, civil war, abuse of power, fights without, within families, and many other seemingly inexcusable acts. Why didn't the Torah advocate something more peaceful and benevolent for society? Okay. So if you know the story of Shmuel, and the first king who was appointed was Shaul HaMelech. So the story is told, it's in the book of Prophet in Shmuel. The Pasuk tells the story, the verses there, in Sefer Shmuel, that the Jewish people came to uh, Shmuel Hanavi, the Prophet Shmuel. And they said, we want a king. Shmuel got upset at them. What do you need a king? You have God. They insisted. So he turned to God and said to God, what should I do? And God said, they want a king, appoint a king. And he appointed Shaul HaMelech. That's the short of it. The obvious question is, as the Tzemach Tzedek, in Derech Mitzvah Sech, talk about Chassidah supply, 
mitzvahs minoy melech, the mitzvah of appointing a king, which is a mitzvah in this week's Pasha. Ask the obvious question. It's some tosim alecha melech. It's a mitzvah in the Teda to appoint a king. So why was Shmuel upset at the people for asking this? And he had to turn to God, and they had to come up with a, with a okay, if they insist, give them a king. Explains the Tzemach Tzedek in a beautiful way. This is based, of course, on a mimer from the Alter Rebbe. That the intention they had for a king was not the intention the Torah had. They wanted a king for nationalistic purposes. They saw other nations had a king. They want also a king. The fanfare, you know, is very external, very much about pride, nationalism, ego. That's why you want a king, because other nations have a king. So Shmuel said, you have God as king. So what does the Torah mean then to appoint a king? Not for pride and nationalistic reasons. A king is because a king epitomizes bitl, malchus. Malchus is the tenth of the ten spheres, the last of the ten spheres. Lesla klum. It's like the moon. It has no light of its own. Its whole essence is bitl. David Melch was the epitome of bitl of malchus. Shaul was not, as he explains in Mitzvah Mini Melch. We'll get back to that in a moment. So the tension, Shmuel saw, they're not looking for bitl. The king in the Torah is meant to be a role model, a living example of a transparent channel of utter selflessness that all he reflects and all he represents is what God wants. In other words, a king in Judaism, a true king according to Torah, is not represented by someone who's wealthy or intelligent or powerful, many armies, but how much bitl and humility he has. Because his role is to be a mamutza hamachaber, an interface, but an, an invisible interface to show the people what it means to be a godly person. As Moshe Rabbeinu was, by Hebeshun and Melech, some say he was in the category of a king. The humblest of all. They were not looking for a hum- humility. They were looking for the opposite, for humpacity. for grandeur, for an almost arrogance. But since they insisted, Hashem said, give them a melech. Essentially, doesn't say that in Dech Mitzasecha. Let them get it for their reasons, and ultimately it will become a melech that's the true melech. Shaul, as he explains there, comes from Bina, was a king, but he wasn't the epitome of Bittl. That's why, where was, who was given Malchus? Malchus based David, from Shevet Yehuda. Shaul was not from Yehud. Shevet Yehuda, from the word Heida. Heida is Bittl, Moidani, Moidim, Yehuda. David Amelech, as he explains there at length. And Mashiach ben David is the ultimate Bittl, the Bittl to Ein Sof, as he explains again in that Maimon. So that answers the question. The Torah's advocating and the mitzvah of a king is not for the reasons of creating a tyrant, God forbid. That's the exact opposite of what the Torah wants. Creating utter bitl. When you have a king like that, no, then you have a world of peace. You will not have fights. The fact that there were fights by Malchus, Yehuda, Malchus, Yisrael, was because they were lacking this bitl. It was not appropriate, and it went, came down to idolatry and worse. Complete defiance of God. The role of a king, a true king, is not about being a mitzias, a mohus, it's about bitl. 
but selflessness. I discussed this also in, in episode 206 and 284 that complement what we just discussed. So continuing that question, can we change God's mind by complaining? Was, was it God's original plan that Israel should not have a king, but then the Jews complained and said we want a king like all other nations have, and God acquiesced and made David the king? Can we change God's mind by complaining? What if we complain that the 39 Malachas of Shabbos are a burden? Will God change his mind and let us drive on Shabbos? So obviously, once I answer the question, this question is answered. No, God did not change his mind. God actually proceeded. God, the mitzvah of appointing a king was before the Jews even asked for a king. Because a king, as I said, represents bitl. What God acquiesced, if you want to call it, was that even though their intention was not the true meaning of a king, of that bitl, of that selflessness, God also said, let them have it. But it was Shaul, not David Amelch. So no, complaints is not what brought God to allow them to have a king. The mitzvah of a king, as I just said, is there initially. If you're already talking about complaints where we could affect God, so to speak, you have two stories, Pesach Sheni and Bnei Slavchad. Pesach Sheni, when the Jews came and complained, Lomen Nigora, we were unable to bring the first uh, the Pesach in time, the 14th and 5th of Nisan, because they were either B'derech Recheiko or Tomei. They were impure. So God, finally, Moshe Rabbeinu said, they're crying out. It wasn't a complaint. They, they, they cried. And God said, give them Pesach Sheni. Nothing is lost. And B'nai Slavchad, that initially they would not have gotten the Yerusha, but their sincere cry elicited God responding. So we have the concept, but it's not complaining because it's difficult. That's why... On the contrary, these complaints were they wanted more mitzvahs, not less. They didn't complain, it's too difficult. They said, we want to, why should we miss out? Why should we not be able to bring a carbon Pesach? Why should we not have a Yerusha, a piece of Eretz HaKedah, the Holy Land, the daughters of Tzlovchot said? Okay, that answers that. Let's address now a very timely fact, a question that came in, literally these days, just yesterday, uh, not yesterday, just last week, sorry, the announcement of a peace agreement between the United Arab Emirates with Israel. So the question is, what would the Rebbe's opinion be about this peace agreement between UAE and Israel? And let's just elaborate on some of the questions that some, a few people asked on this. Why was the Rebbe against the peace process? Was it only because he didn't trust the Palestinians or because he fundamentally disagreed with it? What would the Rebbe say about the peace agreement now? With UAE. It seems they are sincere about peace and normalized relations. Would the Rebbe approve of it? Okay, there's some more questions related, but let me just address this. Many people misunderstand the Rebbe's position on this matter, which is that's why it's so vital to talk about. Nobody wanted and was driven to peace more than the Rebbe. A Tayyid. The Rambam says at the end of Hilchas Hanukkah, the whole Teda was given to bring Shalom. A Teda person, a Rebbe, no less, wants Shalom more than anybody. This was not a question about peace. The question is, how do you achieve true, lasting, and sustainable peace? And remember, peace is not just for one side, that the Jews should be at peace, and the other side, God forbid, should suffer. Peace means everybody would be at peace. When we say be, 
and all that, when Mashiach comes, it's not just for a few people. It's for all people. And the Rebbe was concerned was not just for the Jewish people, even though that was a primary concern. Because they were under attack, they were on the defense, they were outnumbered, etc. And continued to be. The question is, what's the way to get peace? So the Rebbe says, how do you go by to do peace? You follow Teda. Teda Semes, Teda Schesed, Teda Nitnul Asr Shalom. What does the Teda say about peace? If your enemy comes to you and says, I want to, do, I want to have peace with you, what are you supposed to do? Do you trust them? They've been proven to be an enemy until now. So you can't just say, okay, you know what? It's so nice of you, you've come. There has to be some true, sincere gesture. And if your enemy says to you, just give me a piece of your living room. Let's say someone's living right next door to you. And they're, they're, they're your enemy. They throw stones in your windows. They uh, terrorize your children. They're constantly making your life miserable. Finally, they come and say, you know what? If you give me one little piece of your living room, just give me one little piece, I'll stop all this. What would you do? That doesn't mean they're no longer enemy. They're just trying to, after a piece, who knows what they'll want next. Says the Rebbe, this is Hinchas Shimon Shin Tes and Hinchas Shabbos. It's not a radical position. It's not like a right-wing hawkish position. It's common sense, not to be naive. If someone is Becheskas, Kashrus, and you know they're your friend until proven otherwise, it's one thing. It says clearly that if your enemy, who has been an enemy for so long, comes to you and says, I want to, let's talk neutral. Let's, let's, mar- let's talk about trade. Kash v'tevin. We're going to trade straw and, and, uh, and produce. Nothing else. You're supposed to mobilize on Shabbos by the border because it's a Suffolk Pekuch Nefesh, maybe more. I, they're not talking to you about war. They're not uh, declaring war, but they're already declared war. They're a proven enemy. This was the Rebbe's position. And we see that in history. We see what was going on before 1948, after 1948, all the wars. So it was a tainted position. It wasn't some type of instringent, uh, stubborn position, God forbid. A tainted position which makes total sense. You want to talk peace? Peace for peace. Not land for peace. I'm not giving you a piece of my living room. Especially one that I won in a, especially one that I won in a defensive war, 1967 and so on. These are sworn enemies. That's the problem. So you want to talk peace? Absolutely. Talk about cultural exchange, about trade, health, support, commerce, economy, technology, but not land for peace. So I would say that Rebbe, of course he would approve a peace discussion, but don't talk about land. That would be a mistake. Because once you do that, you're giving someone a saying, you know what, I'll give you something, but you're not getting anything tangible in return. It's as I said, we won't throw stones in your windows if you give us a peace. Would the United States agree to that? Would the Soviet Union agree? Would the Russia? Would any other country agree? So this is not to torpedo Halavai, this peace should last. Now, of course, people are going to ask the question, but that's what they want. Well, the Rebbe was trying to preempt and say they will have peace anyway. They want peace, and they're sincere. Then don't make a condition that we give you something and you don't give us something tangible in return. Will you give us a piece of your land if you want a piece of our land? So they made it as if this is our land and you stole our land. 
And then there's a whole series of arguments against that. We didn't steal any land. First of all, if you want to go by the Bible, it's been ours from the beginning of time. Rashi already, Bavarin, Listimatim, they'll say you stole it. Secondly, the land was not conquered through any offense. It was defensive war in 1948 when, they, when Israel only had a few slivers of land. Much, much, much less than now. Even then they were not happy. And they went to war the Arab world. And then Israel conquered more land in a defensive war. And the same thing happened in 1967. And there was another war, a Yom Kippur war. So against peace? No, the contrary. We're on a lasting and sustainable peace. That would be the Rebbe's response, in my opinion. But this leads me to the next question. 42 years ago, Sadat visited Israel and made peace with them. 1978, yep. Camp David Accords. Since then, there have been no wars between the two countries. It is true that there were issues from Gaza that were related to the Egyptians, but I haven't heard a coherent argument that Israel would be better off if there had been no peace. I heard that the Rebbe was against this peace. Why was that? Okay, good question. Because the Rebbe's position, as he told Begin at the time, in private, I heard this later from my father, when Begin came to the Rebbe in 1978. So they, they first spoke publicly in front of the cameras, but then they spoke privately. And the Rebbe told him, he knows from inside sources, that Carter and Washington has to make peace. So they're going to leave this room. When you know that they have to make peace, don't budge. Why give land? Give anything else, but don't give anything tangible that cannot be reversed. Because of the Halchashin Chavtes, the danger. I said that came now with a, with a um, fig leaf because he couldn't win it through war. It's not like he suddenly became a friend. Obviously, it was a nice gesture. It was very manipulative and very powerful. And the Rebbe said, by all means, don't reject him, but don't give land. And the Rebbe felt that if he stood strong, the peace accord would have been made without giving of the land. Is it true that it held up? Yes, it held up, but that still doesn't take away. That's like, thank God. Whether it's a miracle or, or God is protecting Israel, thank God. But the bottom line, a big part of the land was given away. I remember hearing an answer. The first piece of land that was given was Yamit. Yamit was a small settlement near Gaza in the Sinai Peninsula. And the Rebbe yelled very strongly because it was the first time they actually closed down a settlement, a Jewish settlement, and gave it back to uh, Egypt. Gave it back. Gave it to Egypt, even though it was won in a defensive war in 1967. Rabbi Isaac Shveil of of Montreal wrote to the Rebbe, Yamit is not Bekoch Nefesh. I mean, it's not the border. It's a small little settlement. I never saw the actual answer, but what I heard at the time when the Rebbe said, his response, I see with my own eyes that the train has left the station. And you don't start yelling when the train falls down the mountain. You start yelling once it leaves the station. Basically, the Chachm sees where it's going. Yamit was just the beginning. It was a sign that you're ready to give away something and only get a paper agreement in return. That would open up the door for much more. So the Rebbe was against that. It wasn't against the peace. Now the fact that it held up, thank God. Thank God. No, that's what we pray for. But the Rebbe's position still remained that that's not the bargaining. It shouldn't be land and peace. That's not equals. It should be peace for peace. And there are many things Israel can give to its neighbors and to other countries 
that doesn't have to be land, especially when you're just a, such a small country and you still have many enemies, even though there are also some who are, want peace. And it's a volatile region, and it remains so. And you never know what's going to be tomorrow, even though we're always thinking for the positive. So it's very clear the Rebbe's position on this matter. Someone else wrote, which is also, I might as well all address all of this because it's all related. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I want to talk to you today about a painful subject. However, at the same time, it's a very important subject. It's a very important subject. The so-called deal of the century and the talk of annexation of parts of Yehuda and Shamanon. To a naive person, it may sound like a good ideal, but in truth, according to what I heard about it, is that they want to annex 30% of Yehuda and Shamanon and give away 70% to the Arabs and with plans to establish a Palestinian state, God forbid. As Lubavitchers, we know very clearly the Rebbe's view on giving away land to the Arabs and talks of establishing a Palestinian state, Rahman al-Itzlan, especially now with Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu eager to give away land and make a peace deal to impress President Trump. I think it's incumbent on the Jewish community to speak out loudly and condemn these plans and the mere talk of these plans. Particularly Lubavitcher Chassidim have to speak out against these talks and plans, especially those in leadership positions in the Chabad community, have to speak out against this and condemn it in the most powerful of ways. As I heard from you and from the Rebbe himself that we have to be the Rebbe's hands and feet in this world. Additionally, I think sometimes we have to be the Rebbe's voice as well. And let's not try to be politically correct because that's not what the Rebbe stood for. I'll conclude with the Rebbe's own words. I believe... I heard it on a tape of Zeus Chaneke Tovshim and Bo, 5746. The Rebbe was speaking strongly and passionately against giving away land to the Arabs and against the positions of the Israeli government at the time. The Rebbe remarked that the Israeli government will probably withhold funds from the Lubavitch institutions as retaliation to the Rebbe's words. However, the Rebbe concluded this will not stop him from speaking out. I hope you'll discuss, you'll discuss these issues. His Galus Malkenu, Mishichenu, now. So I am discussing it. And it's interesting, this annexation now, that's part of what, at least what I read about this new deal, is that they will not annex. So basically what happened was that instead of annexing 30 and giving away 70, they're saying we're not annexing the 30, uh, for now at least. And that was the, one of the bargaining chips that they're giving to, you, to the UEA, to the United Arab, uh, UAE rather, United Arab Emirates which is essentially saying we will not annex that what we were going to annex. Okay, so that is interesting. We'll see how that evolves. But the position is very clear, and I hope I did justice to it to make sense. It's not, as I said, a radical position. It's a normal position of anyone with clear-headed, clear-eyed thinking that thinks and sees the whole picture, understands, yes, we all want peace, but at the same time understands the volatility and the challenges of the region especially and history. So we all hope and pray for peace, and when there's real peace, peace is for everyone. Everyone will be happy. No bloodshed, no fear, no threat, and you can spend and, and invest all your energy in building and growing instead of defense and, and attacking and protecting and all that comes with that. Okay. Well, I wanted to cover many more topics as always, but we are uh, limited in time. Let me just see that I made sure. Okay. I will just mention
I'll mention one follow-up about trust. I discussed regarding betachen in ashirus, meaning trusting God to not just get what you need, but ashirus, wealth. Didn't the Rebbe say that everyone should be mishtadl, everyone should make an effort to get the rechuz gadl, the great treasure, in order to end the golos? Just like before you see Yitzhak Mitzrayim. You know something? I believe I read this last week. So, I'm not going to do that again. I apologize for that. Um, should we do any follow-up? Let me see if there are any other follow-ups I would do. Uh, the other follow-ups are going to be too, uh, too much at length. Okay, so let me do the Chassidus question. Please explain the Alter Rebbe's example of for Elul of the king in the field. Okay. In Lekutte Teda Pasha De'e, a mimer of Elul called Anila Dei It's one of the Anila Dei Dividei that Alter Rebbe explains, gives that moshal, famous moshal of the king in the field. But what's the context? Why does he give this example? He asks a very fundamental question. We know what makes a yomtiv a yomtiv. Why is shvus shvus Pesach Pesach Sukkot Sukkot? So we know because we're remembering then the events that happened. But what's special about that day? So the answer is because there's a special gili er, a gili alakus on that day. Mitzrayim is man cheirusenu, shvus is man matan teirusenu, Sukkot is man simchasenu. But it's a particular divine energy that manifests. On that day, and not a day after the holiday or a day before. Just like Shabbos. What makes Shabbos Shabbos? There's a holiness to this day. To this period in time, as we spoke at the beginning of the program. Time is energy. And some energies have less layers and less filters, and therefore they are more transparent, and they manifest a godliness. Asked Al-Terebbe, Yud Gimel, that Chedeshel is known, that in it is radiates, is meir, the Yud Gimel Midas Arachem, the 13 attributes of divine compassion and mercy that God revealed to Moshe on the mountain, as is told to us in Parsha Kisisa. And we invoke these 13 attributes in El, but especially later, when Yom Kippur davening is filled with it. Since there's a Gilu Yalakus in Chedesh El, so why is this not a Yom Tov, a month of Yom Tov? Every day is a Yom Chel, a weekday. What makes a weekday a weekday and a holy day a holy day, a Yom Tov? The Gilei Alakos. There's Gilei Alakos in El. Yud Gimel Midas Anachem. Answers the Alter Rebbe with the Moshe. That the Gilei of Alakos in El is a unique type of Gilei. It's a Gilei that comes in mundane garments. And he says, Amelach is on his way back to his palace. And he stops in the field. And the people who are working there, they're dressed in their garments, in their farmer's garments. They're working in the field. They're not dressed in holy, in holiday garments, in big day yontov or big day shabbos, in weekday garments. And because the king is not in his palace, so he doesn't have all his, all his, uh, what do we call them, all his buffers, his ministers and all the different uh, filters till you get to the king. Here the king is accessible. So everyone can come over, Tim says the Alter Rebbe in the Moshul, and the king, and ask whatever you need, and the king shows him a smiling face, save upon him, Yofis, case, smiles, and you could ask, ask for anything. Once the king goes back to the palace, that becomes Yomtev, that's already Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, now you have to enter the palace, here you need to come with tefillahs, and you need to do special things on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, 
You can't just be coming, you can't just behave like you do in the field. Now you have to live up and rise and lift yourself up to the level of the king in his palace. And therefore, El is really is the Gili Alakus of Yudimil Samrachim in the field, in the Chayl. That's the Moshal. So it's a very powerful Moshal. It means that in the month of El, before we get to the high holidays, the formal high holidays, we have access, no matter who we are, even if you're in your complete mundane garments, and this doesn't just mean physical garments, it means psychologically and emotionally, you're in a state of uh, survival. You're involved in your mundane activities, your work. Or today we're involved with the issues that are concerning us, the fears, the unknowns, working from home. What are we going to do with our children? So you could say, you know what? You can't access God with that. Tishrei, you need to come with the whole so-called preparation and with the davening and the songs and all the minhagim and mitzvahs of those days, blowing shefer and Yom Kippur, the mitzvahs of that day. Same thing with Sukkot. Elul, you come as you are. The king receives you as you are, and with a smile, he responds to your requests. That's the power of the month of Elul. That's the Moshal of the Altar Rebbe, Melech Basada, the king in the field, which is a perfect way to conclude this program. As we come to Elul, remember, there are times, yes, it's required that you rise to the occasion, you dress up, I don't just mean physically, but also emotionally, and you prepare yourself. There's 30 days. Once El begins, there'll be 30 days for such preparation. But meanwhile, as you are, come as you are. This is our Father. You don't have to have all the formalities and all the preparations. He's with you in the field and smiles to you and will respond to any request in an intimate, personal way. And then, once you have that, a whole different experience going into Tishrei, which we'll talk about more. So everyone should have a very compassionate, loving, and powerful Chedesh El, Chedesh HaCheshben of accountability, counting for the previous year, preparing for the new year, using all the catalyst and springboard from the month of Av, which we are now in its last days. And it should be a real month. It should be a blessing, a blessed year. We should get over all our challenges and all the difficulties and all those that need our four shalema, complete healing, should have that. It's a month of healing as well. And above all, we should have the gu'ula mitiz v'ashlema. We should have complete redemption, the transformation of this world. As we were told, the visionary telling us this is the time and we have now the opportunity to push the needle, to move the needle to the tipping point, that the scales will tip and bring personal and global redemption. Gu'ula. This has been My Life Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please share. Please partner with us in our campaign to continue and expand these programs by going to MeaningfulLife.com lifeline. There's only a few more hours left in this campaign. And God should bless you for your generosity and kindness to be even more generous and kind to you. And we should be blessed, as I said, with a very healthy and blessed year and a geula even before month of Elul comes. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.